Welcome to the 7 and 7 show where your host, Zach Ellison, extracts valuable insights from top investment experts. Seven key questions in just seven minutes. Stay on top of market trends, expand your investment knowledge, and get tips from the best in the business. Brought to you by Applied Real Intelligence, ARI, the leader in venture debt financing. www.arivc.com. Let's grow! Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 7 and 7 show with Zach Ellison. This is part two of my episode with Kelly Perdue, the co-founder and managing general partner at Moonshots Capital. Well, we should shift gears now and talk about some of the seven you know, key questions. I feel like we could talk about all these other things all day long. <laughs> but it's, um, no, it's, been, it's been great talking about all this stuff. But let's dig into big picture VC themes. So I want to start with trends that you're seeing in venture capital and what you're seeing in the innovation space in general. Um, a lot of it is challenges right now, quite frank, frankly, but let's, um, let's dig into the like, big picture themes. Yeah. Uh, clearly from, um, at least from the VCs that I've been operating and how we've operated in a, you know, pendulum swinging from growth at all costs back toward what we've always been grounded in is you have to actually build a real business. Um, that's got, you know, compelling margins, you know, real sales motion that you understand, right? The you know, CAC to LTV has to be appropriate for the business you're building. Um, you know, when we invest again, early seed stage, you know, pre-pandemic, um, we were requiring a pro forma that we would scrub hard and still showed that with the round we were investing in, we would get 18 to 24 months of runway. And again, we were late seed, so there's approaching a million in annual recurring revenue, which ultimately meant that 18 to 24 months after taking this round of financing, when you're already close to a million annual recurring revenue, you will either have executed an operational metrics that support another round of financing, or we could cut the cost, cut the burn, where you're not going out of business just because you can't raise a round right now. That saved all of our companies from going under during the pandemic, that, that discipline and mentality about how we were approaching that fundraising. For us, that's gone to 36 months now because the distance between a seed and an A has gotten a lot farther apart and a lot harder to, to hit all the milestones in order to, to, win, to win that deal. I also believe in the same way that there's going to be a bunch of companies that don't make it a lot more, a lot higher percentage of companies that don't make it to A in this kind of next three-year time span than there were in the previous 10 years. I think a lot of the thousand plus VCs that raised their first fund over the last three years, a lot of those are also going to have the same problem, right? There wasn't significant discipline. There wasn't an understanding about how to invest. And it was kind of a cool thing to do to be a VC. It's it's very difficult to be a VC, especially if you like any, you know, especially early stage, if you're looking for any short-term signals or indicators, you don't know if you're even close to good for five to seven year time frame. Typically, it doesn't mean in our, you know, aberrations, but it's a very long, you know, I, I like to joke, it's, it's a, it's a hopefully get rich slow scheme. <laughs> it's, it is not a, it is not a get rich quick scheme. Um, and you really have to, for, you know, for that type of perseverance, you have to have significant passion about what you're doing. And that's fundamentally for Craig and I, and, you know, 
probably over the last five years, the thing that we've added to our context on how we make decisions on founders, two things that aren't listed on the website that are criteria. We, 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 when we get off with that founder, we're both fuck. Yeah. Like we have to do this deal. That's, that's one. So I don't know how you completely articulate that with numbers, but it's a fuck. And two, very importantly, the company has to be meaningful. So on the current trajectory for what they're doing, it has to do something for the world, i.e. it's not a horoscope company. Not that that doesn't do things for the world, but it's much more along the lines of our dual use focus where we're doing things that you know increase uh, equity in the ecosystem like IDME does for people who previously weren't able to show their, who, who their identity was or uh, what Red Six is doing with making the world safer by training up U.S. pilots and protecting you know, what we're doing here. So, you know, fuck yeah and meaningful have become super important to us. I love those points. I, I really do. And I, I've been very disappointed with the VC ecosystem over the last couple of years in the sense that I think there's just been a lot of crap that's been funded and people just come up with ideas that aren't actually solving a problem. They're just like, oh, hey, I'm copying this business model, trying to like tweak it on the margins. But the reality is when we talk about getting back to basics, to me, it's not just hey, let's find a company that reaches profitability sooner. It's let's solve some real problems that add real value. Like enough of the bullshit. Like, like can we please just go find some companies that can solve some real problems that make our lives better, right? And, you know, there's not as many out there as you might think, but I'll, you know, the ones that are, are going to be the ones that are successful um, in my view. And the other thing I'll add is I think liquidity now, having a, a strong runway, a long runway is, is imperative, like you talked about. And I actually think that's going to be the primary differentiator between companies that are successful and those that aren't over the next three years. And what I mean by this is that you can take like three or five companies that have similar business models and you know, kind of similar products, if you will. And the one that's going to survive and ultimately win and capture that market is the company that has the most capital because the others are simply going to run out of capital or it's going to be too expensive for them to raise and it's going to hamper their growth. And so you don't actually need to be the best product in your category. You could be number three or four or five, but if you're a good marketer and you can raise capital, going back to what we were talking about with, with Trump and marketing, then you can survive and you can outlast your competitors. They will literally drop because they will run out of runway. And that's what I'm seeing now. And I, I think that's gonna be the case. And you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of um, you know, VCs and, and startups were, were kind of slow to, to get it through their you know, minds that you have to go raise capital now, because if you think you're gonna go raise capital when you've got six months of runway left, you're done. You, you might as well just the company yeah. wrap. It's a zombie company. Like nobody's going to fund it because every VC with half a brain is, is thinking like like you and I, which is, hey, I want to see a longer runway right now. I want to see a company yeah. that that can reach profitability. I want to see a company that's sustainable that can last through a recession. I describe what you just said as kind of you know you go going for a walk in the woods with your buddy, um, and you turn around the bear is there you don't have to outrun the bear. You have to outrun your buddy. Yep. So, and, and, and it, it's, it's absolutely true um, that understanding how to really extend your runway is critical, you know, 
job number one for the, for the CEO, right? You are ensuring there's gas in the tank to make it to the other side. And every company that I've been involved with has had some type of valley of death, right? Where the product's not quite working. We're not quite there yet. We need to do a bridge round. We need our strategic investor to bridge us a little bit farther. Um, and, you know, all of those have gotten to, you know, really significant outcomes. All of them that have gotten to really significant outcomes have overcome those challenges or obstacles. And you simply cannot run out of money. Agreed. So what are the key investment principles that you live by? I mean, our focus has been, you know, extraordinary leadership is the number one criteria. Um, that founder does not have to be military veteran, uh, division one team athlete, um, exemplifying overcoming some extraordinary hardship. Like we have way over indexed on what we call non-traditional founders, um, not just military veterans, but also women and people of color. And those last two categories were non-intentional. It was, you know, because we invest late seed and we have literally thousands of deals per deal that we do, if somebody gets through all of those filters, gets up to us and we like it and it's a woman or person of color to the point it's gotten to there, they've probably exhibited all those leadership characteristics that we love in military veteran founders. And, you know, we're about finding the person that's going to be able to execute with that extraordinary leadership. So that's the first piece for us that's the most important. Um, Craig and I have had 15 operating roles between us. So across multiple sectors. So that company being in a sector that we're focused on either through our operating experience and or our investment experience helps leverage our network and our knowledge. So that's another important criteria for us um, that we really like to look at. And then, like I said, a, a, in addition to, we like it to be approaching a million annual recurring revenue in a sector that we like, all of those pieces. Greg and I have to be compelled because like I said, this is seven, 10, 15 years working with these founders. So it's a marriage So we really have to be excited about. It. I'm like, I'm, you know, in the shower and the conditioner thinking about, okay, how do I help ID me today? Like you have, that's, that's how we want to be fired up about these deals. Um, and then it's gotta be meaningful. We, you know, probably halfway through fund one, we're like, we're only going to do things that move the needle in a big way for you know, the defense of the United States, the health of humanity, you know, space exploration, whatever, whatever it might be. It really needs to be something that's truly massive. Um, those, though, you know, if something makes it through all those, where we're excited about it. They're in the, you know, they're in the finals for negotiating to try to get a term sheet. And one of the things that, that you touched on is this, uh, the backgrounds of people. Right. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of track record and I think track record in terms of numbers is actually overrated. Right. Like I was reading an article today about, you know, how some LPs, um, institutional investors are, you know, questioning, you know, whether they want to stay with like Sequoia, even though Sequoia's got, you know, whatever it is, 40, 50 year track record. And my thought was, who cares what somebody at Sequoia was doing 40 years ago? Like that's not the person making decisions today. And yeah, they've got an institutional structure, but that's like saying, hey, I, I would love to do business with Lehman Brothers because they were you know, a great franchise and fixed income for, for decades. They're no longer around. They screwed up, right? And so my thinking is, you know, track record is important, 
but how how you evaluate or what you consider track record is more important. In other words, go find founders that have overcome some incredible obstacles like you talked about, right? Don't just show me, oh, hey, this guy's got like a good track record working at some you know generic financial firm that's got a good brand. Like who gives a shit? Those guys are a dime a dozen, right? Find me somebody who's overcome real hardship. And that to me is the person I want to bet on. And so I just think there needs to be more, um, more time and effort spent into digging into non-financial track record, right? Because that's what makes a good founder. It's not just, hey, I was, I was you know, the number seven employee at Uber. So now, now I'm considered like a, a smart person. Like, again, not impressive to me. You know who went to work for Uber when I was in business school? Like people that couldn't get the job at any of the top 250 firms, right? True story, <laughs> right? Like maybe that's <laughs> right. some people off, but that's the truth, right? Like I had no interest in yeah. working. Like I went to work for the best bank in the world at the time, number one in fixed income. That was the hard job to get. Uber was when you couldn't yeah. get into Google or Apple or Microsoft or any other good firm. So they're like, oh, well, I got to right. work somewhere. I don't want to like leave the University of Chicago without a bid, right? So that's where they went, you know? And so I don't know. I'm just, this is just one of the things I think the market has totally wrong. And the other thing I'll mention in terms of trends is let's stop chase, chasing this shiny object, right? Like, oh, wow, like yeah. AI, that's going to change things. Yeah. And guess what? 95% of the investments that people are making today are going to be zeros. Because they have no idea what they're investing in, they have no idea what the implications are, they have no idea, you know, who they're who they're investing in, right? Everybody that pitches me now has some AI spin. I dig in a little bit, and they're like they fall flat on their face. Like they have no AI chops. They don't even know the difference. Yeah. You know, they they have no idea what AI is. They're they're just bullshit artists. They're peddling crap, and and so I think that's you know another thing that people need to think about is, is your yeah you hit on um, that hot. Yeah, the the um, I, I I wouldn't say Craig and I ignore uh, the sector, but we are agnostic. Again, we, we believe and we've seen with the founders that we've backed that they'll understand and see what's happening with the changes in the technologies in the marketplace and adjust accordingly. So it's not a full bet on a specific technology or a specific sector, right? It's how can we add value? Is this founder somebody who's solving a real problem? They can and understanding how they plan to build the business against it. Again, we try to come in late seed, so there's something there to evaluate. Pricing is not always complete. Um, certainly, all the entire services or product aren't complete. The team's not completely baked, but there's enough there for our to see, for us to sink our teeth into it, understand the assumptions and how that founding team thinks about solving the problem, and you can see a little bit of the perseverance, coachability on those components, um, but. I, I agree, you know, AI maybe a little differently, like it's no matter, you know, even in our existing current portfolio, AI is impacting, like how do you increase efficiency? Where are you going to use it most usefully? Because you, you want to be competitive and still be able to use that tool effectively. So that's a, that's a piece of it, right? That's, it's not the whole thing. It's like, oh, we're turning into a complete AI focused shop with no expertise or knowledge about it. That I think is a recipe for disaster. So this segues nicely into my next question, which is what are the common mistakes that you see investors making? VCs, that is. And, and you could also you yeah. know, say you know, institutional investors too, in terms of how they're allocating. I mean, any institution that didn't invest in moonshots? Um, no. Yeah, that's the, uh, the, um, so I can speak personally, right? Um, 
we've, I've been investing since 2004 now, almost 20 years. And uh, while we were running the syndicate, so we went angel investing from 2004 to 2014, so a decade of angel investing. 2014 to 2017, we had a syndicate vehicle only. And then in 2017 is when we, when we you know, raised for fund one, 2020 for fund two, and we're in fund three now. And every time, you know, a little Malcolm Gladwell, every time I kind of ignore that gut feeling, burn every single time. So Craig and I have to agree when we make an investment. Like we both have to say yes. And we can both be persuasive with the other one if somebody's not completely feeling it. And we've helped each other to make the right decision by acting that way. Um, but, you know, I invested in a founder where something just wasn't quite right. Came out of a August program, like the named program that everybody knows, I'm not going to say it. And had all the right, you know, bells and whistles. It was in a space that seemed like it was pretty hot at the time. But I could never like pin down the founder and like for this was this was in the syndicate before we got to formalized fund component. I couldn't quite like something was off. Like I couldn't quite get it. And um, we wrote a we we did a medium sized syndicate into them with the rest of a whole bunch of other people that invested. And the next thing is like skiing in the Alps, you know, on their Instagram, and then like going to the Bahamas and like updates very sporadic without relevant information on being able to figure out well, what does that mean for burn? And like, you know, the first thing, most founders now that work with us, when they first talk to me or see me, they tell me what's in the bank and what the burn month number of burn months is. Like, it's like the first, first thing they say, right? So that I know they're thinking about it too, but that's like, you know, you have to stay alive. That's your number one job is to keep cash in the bank. Um, and it eventually dissipated and we lost, you know, we, we lost, it wasn't, it wasn't huge, but it was still like, a, okay, I'm never ignoring that gut feeling again, never happening. And I think people can get caught up in hype. And we saw that that's definitely occurred where it's like, okay, I don't even have to do any due diligence. How do I get my money into this deal? And that is, that's when it gets really scary. And, you know, at, notwithstanding legal fiduciary responsibilities, that that's just not a way to operate. Yeah, I'm with you when it comes to the, the founder's integrity, if you will. And one of the things I always like to do is is check out, you know, how they're, you know, kind of how they're living their personal life, right? Like if, if I show up at their office and they've got like a five hundred thousand dollar automobile, right? And they haven't yet reached profitability, there's no fucking way I'm investing with them. Full stop. Right? Yeah. Um, in fact, nobody I know will invest with them if, if you know if, if I have anything to do with it. Um, my view is they need to be grinders, right? They need to basically put their investors first and after they've made money for their investors, they can do whatever the heck they want. They also need to be accessible and transparent to your point earlier, you're trying to reach somebody, you know, to get insights on the business and they're on you know, the ski slopes. Not, not, you know, that's a non-starter, right? <laughs> yeah, so, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like simple things, right? Like people ask, like, how do you... How do you invest successfully in early stage companies that don't have you know, a long you know, track record or that don't have a ton of assets? It's like, look, you have to look where others don't, and but you have to have some rules and processes around that. It's not just, you know, do I like this person and do I feel like I can trust them? 
I mean, I think there's there's a lot to be said for having processes that attempt to quantify things that aren't usually that easy to quantify, right? Yeah. Like their personality types. You know, are they humble? Are they hardworking? Do they have high integrity? Can you, you know, can you trust them? Right? Are they going to put yep. you first? Are they unselfish? You know, how do you know, how does their team respond to them as well? Uh, that's the other thing I like to look at is not just the leadership team, but that second layer of folks at the firm. I want to see you know, who are they hiring, right? Like if I walk into a, a startup's office and they've got like five good looking you know, receptionists that aren't doing anything. Okay. Again, bad use of cash. And I see that a lot or right? not as much anymore because you know, that's not as acceptable, but like, even like two years ago, 2021, you know, a lot of startups were using you know, their investor cash for, for like, things that weren't adding value to the business. And a lot of that you can't really uh, get a sense of until you have boots on the ground. I, I do think there's a, you know, there is, uh, despite this, you know, Zoom business economy now, this work from home, it, the reality is if you don't know somebody and you haven't gotten to see you know, their facilities on site and you haven't gotten to meet their team, then you're probably not making an informed decision. Com completely agree. The due diligence is critical. Um, you know, we focus on leadership. I wrote a book on applying 10 leadership principles from the military to business so we can evaluate our founders in some cases subjectively, in other cases objectively across those 10 principles. The team is critical. I've never seen a great leader who didn't bring people with her or him, right? They, it's not like a one-person show. They've, they've got a following because they've built that, that leadership doesn't exist in this one instance. It's a leadership quality, right? So when they go into this role or found this company, hearing that founder story, that origin story is incredibly important. And we'll frequently, um, we'll get introduced by our co-investors, later stage investors who know what we like and we've worked with previously as our companies grow into them, send us deals. And the founders invariably are like, well, where would you like me to start? And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm investing in your seed round if I invest. But that is not the end of the story. I need to hear how compelling you are and are going to be when you're raising a series C. So I need to see the entire, you need to blow me away from that first presentation. The origin story, why it's important, how big can it get? Why are you differentiated? All these critical elements, right, that I need to see and hear. And I need to, I need to feel the passion, right? I need to understand impeccability. Like you need to know the details of your financial model, you, the founder. One thing that we have to coach because it's not as obvious is the, as much as they're hated and dreaded fundraising, you got to know the docs. That's where everything happens. You need to know all of the provisions and your attorney that you're already paying will describe to you all the elements but you need to become an expert on the financial docs, not defer to an attorney who has 20 deals they're working on sometime because that's your business. That's your baby. So, you know, saying that to somebody and then three weeks later, them still not understanding terms means they're not coachable. They're not listening like this. So there are a whole bunch of feedback loops where we can understand how these founders are going to be over a longer period of time. I agree. I think when it comes to docs, People should really work through them themselves first. And you really bringing the lawyers 
at the last minute after you've already you know determined what you need and then have the lawyer you know look through it to make sure that you're protected and point out any you know things you may have missed but i think a big mistake for a lot of folks is they bring in um, lawyers too soon and they rely on them too heavily i mean my view is i mean i do all my own docs initially uh, like i mean granted i have a background in structuring right <laughs> like a structure of doing transactions but but I don't bring in the lawyers until the very end. I'm like, well, I'm not going to pay you so that I can do your work for you. Like, I'm going to basically figure it all out, have the discussion with the counterparty. We're going to agree on everything. And then the lawyer is going to paper up what we've already agreed to. Like lawyers don't negotiate. And or, or call out something technical that could put yes. you in jeopardy. I mean, exactly. you know, the, the best the best lawyers, and this is our, you know, my advice to the founders that we work with. It's like, you can get, you know, death by a thousand cuts from an attorney who's doing everything zealously to protect your position. The best attorneys I've worked with listen to me describe the business solution I want, then create the structure around that solution, but give me fair warning around the places where we might have exposure. And that, and then when I say go, there's no, there's no more discussion. I got it. I've taken that into account. It's documented. Now let's, let's, make, let's, let's get the deal done. Um, those are the best attorneys, in my opinion, that I've worked with. hundred percent. They need to, they need to have business sense. They need to be commercial and understand like, what are my goals, right? And what are the goals of my counterparty? And then make sure that I'm protected in that business context. If they're just going into it as a lawyer, yeah, they can nitpick a document all day long and they'll probably spend you know, tens of thousands of your dollars on, on stuff that doesn't even matter. And in fact, might not even help you because let's not forget when you're having those negotiations, that's either building the relationship or it's taking away from the relationship, right? I mean, right. I always think that you know, if, I, if I'm going to hire somebody or somebody wants to partner with me, I'm, you know, I'm going to judge them in large part on how those negotiations go. You know, if they're a pain in the ass to deal with, you know, at the outset, then why would I want to partner with them? You know, it's it's like, look, we're we're trying to be fair here. We're trying to create value for both of us, and we should be able to do that. And if it if it's overly complicated or you need to, you know, nitpick every little detail, then you're just not somebody I want to do business with. Um, so, a couple more questions here. Um, one is, I, I want to talk about venture debt, right? Because we've been talking a lot about the need for capital. Uh, venture debt is is something that's you know, not necessarily well understood by a lot of founders or, or investors for that matter. Uh, essentially, venture debt is is debt capital for, for venture-backed companies that have already reached a stage where they're generating revenue typically, and they can service the debt, and they're, they're looking for growth capital, but they want capital that's less dilutive than equity financing, that's cheaper than equity financing, and that's faster to obtain. And so there, there's always been an, a need for venture debt, but I think it's it's become uh, much more relevant recently because there's more companies than ever before that need capital. They're not able to raise equity capital effectively. They either can't get it at all, or it's really expensive, or it takes too long to get. And so they're looking on the debt side. Um, and then, of course, we had Silicon Valley Bank collapse on, on March 10th. And although they're, you know, technically in the market for citizens, you know, they're a shell of their former self. And I, I don't think that business is going to be you know, more than probably 20% of the original footprint when all is said and done. And so there's just a, a lack of capital and there's a lot of demand for capital. So there's this big disconnect there, um, which creates an opportunity for, for venture lenders, uh, 
specifically non-bank venture lenders. Uh, but I wanted to get your thoughts as a VC who's worked with many portfolio companies. You know, how should founders be thinking about venture debt? Yeah, I, my experience with venture debt is it's, it's an incredibly valuable tool that a founder should know and understand how to access, utilize, um, and similarly to what we discussed on understanding the legal documents, really get a handle and understanding on how payback works. When it, when it turns on, what it does to cash flow, I think that's probably um, the biggest warning I would have for anybody who is, oh, an extra 5 million, 20 million, 100 million, whatever it might be, really understanding the parameters and what that does to your cash flow is critical, which requires a good finance function if you don't have those chops yourself as the founder. But for the current ecosystem and the need to extend runway for all the reasons you mentioned, it's it can be incredibly valuable. Um, I know, you know a lot of companies, you caveat it, can be a great tool for a company that's generating revenue. I know a lot of companies were able to or got to or did take on venture debt when they weren't necessarily generating revenue. And if you don't have a good handle and understanding on how your revenue is really going to ramp, which you can never know if you don't even have it turned on yet, it's literally anyone's guess on what's going to happen. Um, I think it's a little more dangerous uh, to do that. I think for growth capital, awesome, incredibly important. Um, it gets a little scarier when you're funding payroll. Knowing low watermark on cash relative to debt, super important, right? If you've got a trajectory, a trajectory on or projection on how you're going to, you know, you know, pull up into the, you know, prof profitability component, super important. But for someone who has excellent financial controls in place and some predictability on revenue, it's, I, I don't want to say free money because it's not free, but it's a phenomenal tool that I think all founders should evaluate. We, we, we ensure that we evaluate it in every deal that we're doing. So when founders are looking to raise venture debt, what are, um, you know, what are the options that you typically discuss with them in terms of how they might find the right providers? So, you know, debt, like equity, there's a spectrum. What we discussed previously about reputation is critically important. Frequently, um, the debt providers have relationships actually with the VCs, right? Um, because historically there's like a look across the table and a, you know, an unwritten agreement that you're good for this. If the company doesn't make it kind of, you know, kind of dynamic, even though it's not, you know, legally constructed that way, typically, um, especially on those that hadn't hit, you know, revenue yet. Right. Um, what additional value do can that um, debt provider add, whether it's additional relationships, banking relationships in other areas, like there are other elements to it that are very similar to any vendor, including if you, if you consider a VC or vendor, right? Like how else are you going to add value? How trustworthy are you? You know, obviously there are regulatory guidelines that are associated with, you know, with debt that's not associated with equity. It's, it's a very serious business and a very serious deal. And you need to understand all those parameters, you know, debt covenants are real and the same way you need to understand your, you know, legal docs for financing, you need to understand 
any any debt structure and the parameters, the covenants around any debt financing. Yeah, it's funny because we get a lot of a lot of inbound from companies that aren't at all a fit um, because they're they're basically looking <clears throat> they're looking to raise debt capital because they can't raise equity capital, and I think one of the misconceptions is that venture debt is is there to you know help companies that are struggling. And, and that's actually the furthest thing from the truth. The reality is, to your point earlier, venture debt is growth capital for successful companies that already have revenue. At least, you know, that is successful venture lenders. Like that's, you know, that's what they do. And you know, at ARI, we would never lend more typically than 50% against recurring revenue. So if a company is doing you know, 20 million a year in revenue, we'd make them potentially a $10 million loan. If a company is doing 2 million in revenue, it's a non-starter because the minimum we're going to look for is probably 10 million uh, on the low end. Okay. And, and so that, yeah. that's, if that's a very different type of company than you know, a lot of the folks that are out there that are, that, that are like hearing about venture debt and they're like, oh, wait, this is a way for me to like keep my business from going under. Unfortunately, that's not what venture debt is. You know, there, there's lenders that do that, but it's it's going to be really expensive, and you know, and quite frankly, those are not what I call you know venture lenders. Those are you know lenders that are lending to distressed companies, right? Um, yep. So, I mean, the, a couple of metrics that I think people should know in terms of how to you know, how to size venture debt for their own companies. Typically, you need to have some revenue. Um, you know, everybody, every bank's different, and every non-bank lender is different in terms of their metrics. But at ARI, we're looking for a minimum of ten million in revenue. Typically, want to have more than that, but that's the minimum. Don't want to lend more than fifty percent against annual revenue. Want to uh, keep the loan to value less than twenty percent. Uh, most of the deals that we're looking at now in our pipeline are you know, single-digit LTVs. You know, it's called like seven to ten percent range. And just to put that in context. The, the good lenders that have performed well through cycles typically have an LTV in that like mid-teens range. Uh, one of the top private lenders you know, had an LT, average LTV of you know, 12% for their portfolio. A couple of the leading um, business development companies that are publicly traded have LTVs in the like mid-teens, like you know, 16% or so. So, so that's key for lenders. And, um, and then also making sure that the equity capital is there too. So really traditionally, venture debt comes in after the companies raise equity capital. So think of it as you know, runway extension, uh, additional capital at a, at a lower cost. So it you know, decreases your weighted average cost of capital, but it's not there as a standalone product typically. It, it's almost always done in conjunction with an equity raise. Um, typically, three to six months after the equity raise where the company realizes, hey, you know, we could go raise some more capital and we probably should for all the reasons we were talking about earlier, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so if you want to go raise some more capital, really decrease your, your business risk in the sense that you've got an extra you know, six months of runway from, from this debt, that's, you know, that's the ideal situation where a company is saying, well, we've got, you know, we're, we're raising 50 million total we're going to do 40 million in equity and we'll do 10 million in debt. That means you know, we're getting you know, 10 million of, of lower cost capital, much less dilutive. So that's a win. And it also you know, extends our runway a bit as well. And you know, there's, all, there's other uses for venture debt as well that are, 
that are more you know, specific based on the situation. Like you could use it as bridge capital, but for the most part, it's um, it's best suited for companies that are just looking for additional growth capital. It's basically you know, cheaper money for winners, you know, not bailout yep. money for losers. And that's the way I think about it. Last question for you is yep. how how should investors think about investing in innovation over the next three to five years? So if you're an institutional investor, you're like a big pension or an endowment or a large family office, and you've got some money you want to put to work in the innovation economy, what are the themes you should be thinking about and how should you be thinking about allocating? So for, you know, I, I think that, you know, the institutions obviously upstream from where we are that you just asked about, um, but the themes are the same, right? Health is huge. Space is huge. Um, how AI impacts. And, and when we see new technologies like AI, we think about picks and shovels rather, rather than an individual niche, hopefully hitting the exact right play of an AI play. So things that enable AI and or cause AI, like, you know, GPUs for AI and, and the impact on NVIDIA. Like, what does that mean? What's the infrastructure have to be to support additional items like that? Um, when economy starts to falter, everybody goes running to, to the government side. And that's why dual use has come on so strong. Craig and I have been doing for you know a decade and a half. And now it's really interesting to every VC who's never had anything to do with it. Not every VC, but it's become a little bit more mainstream. And I'm glad for that because I think anything that helps increase the security of the nation and helps the United States is phenomenal. So I'm, I'm glad for it. But you know, if you're um, an allocator at an institutional level, you want to look for the same thing we look for which is extraordinary leadership and leaning into those categories. Um, not being wedded to a specific technology. Again, the technology has shown shifts so quickly that, you know, 10 and 20 year, 30 year cycles of investing in a very specific technology versus a sector and or the leadership in that sector um, will, will, will increase the likelihood of your results. Um, and I think in the same way, you know, I'm looking at a founder and saying, okay, do I want to spend the next seven to 12 years of my life on, you know, speed dial with this person? Um, it's got to be a right mix for, for how they're thinking about it. I realize that uh, institutional LPs have a little different relationship with their brand than say Craig and I do with Moonshots um, in terms of economic incentive, the brand being people that are doing it, but they still have long-term career plans and want to have their performance show well. And I think that um, maybe trying to be a little more entrepreneurial, like you said, the person who's in Sequoia, what are they on now? 40, 40, you know, I don't, I don't know how many vintages there've been, but there've been a lot. It's because they're a storied brand who helped build, you know, Silicon Valley. Um, you know, part of their job, should also be thinking about optionality for finding who's going to be in the Sequoia for 20 years from now or some equivalent. So they have a little bit of an eyedropper funding problem. Like there's so much money that they deploy. It's hard for them to take $5 million optionality and still be able to do diligence and understand and look at all those. They want to be able to deploy $500 million chunks, not 10 or 20 or $30 million chunks. So it, it gets a little more difficult for them to get down what I call the eyedropper funding problem. But 
for those that are able to do that and analyze the same way we're looking at 2000 deals, um, you're going to be able to create extraordinary returns for your investor base. Right. And that's, I, I would like to do that for the fireman's fund. I would like to do that for, you know, pick, pick your pension plan, right? That's the, the people who've worked really hard to get where they are and expecting, you know, to have fantastic returns come out of that. Agreed. Well, it's been great having you on, Kelly. I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, love the way you're thinking about the, the business, right? And thinking about how uh, how to invest in innovation. And I think you're doing it in a way that makes a lot of sense and um, really stand out in that regard. Thank you, Zach. And uh, I look forward to steering our founders over to you for venture debt when they're appropriately positioned. I appreciate that. And um, we'll we'll see. I'll see you soon in person, I'm sure. And I uh, really appreciate you yeah. coming on and uh, love what you and, and Craig have, have built at, at Moonshots. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the 7 and 7 show with Zach Ellison. Um, this episode featured Kelly Perdue, the man, the myth, the legend, and uh, <laughs> best investors in innovation. So see you all next time. Thank you for listening to The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison. We're glad you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights that you can use to grow your investment returns. Stay connected with us and access previous episodes of The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison by visiting our website at www.7and7show.com or connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at 7 and 7 Show. Learn more about ARI's Venture Debt Opportunities Fund and sign up for ARI's newsletter, Uncommon Sense, at www.arivc.com. For investor inquiries, please contact ARI's team at ir at arivc.com. Thank you for your continued support. Until next time, keep learning and growing.